Hi, everybody. Sound is good? Well, thanks, Charlie. It's good to be here. Yes, I have been hanging around with lawyers a long time. And so uh, I'm really happy that we've been doing this for some years now, sitting together, thinking about the profession together, trying to figure out how to make it better for the people who are practicing it for everybody. And it's getting better. The possibilities are strengthening. Also, uh, Charlie didn't mention I have a son who's a lawyer uh, working for a very large firm in Manhattan. So he's in the middle of the madness of lawyering. So I find uh, the work of lawyers really interesting. And this is what my son told me when he decided to practice law. He, he told me that what's interesting to him about the law is that it takes place at the juncture where noble abstractions like justice, fairness, due process, the rule of law, and so on, meet the concrete on the ground realities of ordinary everyday life and the craziness of human beings. The place where these abstractions and the craziness of human beings meet is the law and the work of lawyering. So that makes it a very interesting profession. Anyway, that's what my son told me. That was his rationale for choosing the profession. I guess uh, if we were all left to our own devices in the world as it is, the most brutal and devious people would always prevail over the innocent and the kind. This usually happens anyway. But at least uh, we have the idea of the law and the hope in the law so that there's some chance anyway that there can be some mitigating force. And I think as a society we do value fairness and justice. And this gives fairness and justice at least a fighting chance even though they don't usually prevail, at least there's a chance and at least there's a conversation. So you are professional people who take up concrete particular situations and you try to bring as best you can these noble abstractions that don't exist as such to bear on these concrete situations. And this in itself is something that lately has been fascinating me. And maybe it fascinates you too, although I have noticed uh, that sometimes things that fascinate me seem so obvious to other people that they scarcely notice them, where I'm standing there like in awe of this thing that is so obvious. But what it is that's fascinating me in relation to what I've just said is that, you know, there are no such, there's no such thing as justice, fairness, freedom, rights, 
and so on. You, you can look around the room here and you can see a lot of things. But you can't see or feel or hear or taste or grasp justice, freedom, human rights, and so on, because these are just abstract ideas. History is an abstract idea. All statistics are abstractions. All social forces are abstractions. So they don't, you know, concretely exist. And maybe you've noticed that when you get in a conversation where you're talking about these abstractions, it's very hard for that conversation to be warm and personal. Usually it's like from up here and there can be a lot of fighting. We see this in the sort of our political discourse tends to be not very connected, warm discourse because it tends to be about these abstractions. And yet, this is the thing that fascinates me. At the same time that these things are totally abstract and don't really exist, here they are. They're here in the room. They're here in us. I'm just me. I'm nobody else but me. You can see my form, my body. You can hear my words in the air. This is my observable presence. And yet my actual life expresses and is completely conditioned by social forces, by history, by abstractions like justice or the lack of it, fairness or the lack of it, my rights or the lack of them. It's actually here in my life. It's an odd thing, isn't it? To me, it's like totally fascinating. How is that possible? Something that doesn't exist, really, completely shapes our lives. And, as I'm saying, this is what lawyers are dealing with every single day. This juncture of these abstractions in our lives. So, when Charlie asked me to speak tonight, he said, uh, he was thinking about, he's been thinking a lot about criminal law, and he asked me to uh, talk about criminal law specifically, which I'm going to sort of do, but uh, then he told me just now that actually there's only one or two criminal law practitioners in the room. <laughs> so, what I say about criminal law hopefully will be uh, pretty relevant to anything in the law, but let's see. So, uh, I don't know that much about criminal law. Most of what I know about it, I learn on TV. <laughs> so, I apologize in advance for my, uh, uh, you know, all the incorrect things I'm certain to say and for my naivete. I also apologize in advance for all the things that I'm going to say that you already know. Uh, I think now, everybody knows pretty much everything. I don't have anything else to say that everybody doesn't already know. So I'm quite conscious whenever I give a talk, everybody knows this already. So I apologize if you're going to hear the things that you already know. But uh, I suppose that repetition of the obvious uh, is probably worth doing if it's beneficial. I hope what I say will be beneficial. 
because uh, the really important things are simple, but they need to be repeated many, many, many times because it takes a long time hearing them repeated from different voices and different angles for them to sink in and make a difference. So uh, I'm starting with the assumption that everybody in this room, and probably most of the people anywhere, would prefer that this world be ruled by peace and harmony and love instead of power and greed and all the things that it tends to be ruled by. We all, I think, prefer that. And certainly the mindfulness movement, Buddhism in general, and any religion preaches this and hopes for it and is trying to work toward it. Despite this, I mean, it's also a stunning and fascinating thing that despite the fact that we all wish for this, the world is full of disharmony and aggression and conflict, mostly. As long as we're going to remain stuck on self-interest and self-protection, and as long as most of us believe that these things should be the motivators for our conduct, there will continue to be conflict and aggression, um, which means there will be conflict and aggression for a long, long time to come. And whenever there's conflict and aggression, there is always passion, strong emotions. This is true in criminal law, but I think it's true in any form of law. After all, you don't go to a lawyer when everything is going fine, right? Go to a lawyer because there's a problem, there's a conflict. And, and there's, a, there's strong emotions always involved. So I just want to acknowledge all of you who work in the field of law, fielding these emotions. Uh, this is not easy. It's difficult work, painful work. Somehow, most likely, without realizing what you were doing, you chose this. You chose to place yourself right in the middle of some of the most difficult human situations. And let's be honest, that can't but have an effect on your hearts, whether you realize it or not. And so nothing could be more important for you, I would think, than to develop practices and capacities for turning toward your own hearts, not only for healing them, but even more for, for the purpose of appreciating and understanding uh, those with whom you're working. And I don't mean just clients. In the case of criminal law, you know, victims, defendants, but also fellow attorneys, parties of all sorts, colleagues, judges, juries, everybody. It seems to me that work in the law implies and probably requires a deep study of human nature as much as 
and I, I would say even more than a study of the law and its procedures. So you need wisdom. And you need an ongoing effort to develop emotional strength, empathy, forgiveness, compassion. And I'm sure that if you see this and take up this challenge, it will not only make you better at what you do, but will make your work more sustainable and much, much more meaningful. I don't think of lawyers as technicians of the law. I think of them in any way every lawyer could be, it should be, I think, not just a technician of the law, but a wise person, a wise counselor. Don't we want to do that? We go to a lawyer, find a wise person who has really good advice, balanced, whole, global. That's, that's what we want when we go to a lawyer. We don't want just somebody who can tinker with the law. So the job of lawyering always puts you, one way or the other, uh, in the middle of some sort of conflict. Conflict, I don't think, uh, is a mistake, really. It's not a failure of communication or a failure of society or the system. I don't think it's something that we need to fix or avoid. Though, of course, yes, when there's conflict, it has to be addressed in the best possible way, so it doesn't get out of hand. But I think that in the world, the way it is and will be, conflict is pretty normal. Maybe if the, there were only two people on the planet, there would be conflict. Immediately, within the 24 hours, probably, there would be conflict between those two people. Maybe you don't even need two people. <laughs> Maybe one person would be enough. Uh, for there to be conflict. So uh, conflict is pretty ingrained and pretty basic to being human, so I think that it's necessary to see conflict as opportunity. Opportunity to understand better, you know, who we are. A chance to explore the deepest human questions. Questions like, uh, what is good? What is evil? And what do you do about it? So, uh, in addition to working with the uh, Bay Area Working Group, I also work with uh, Gary Friedman and Jack Himmelstein, who have the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And there, we're really kind of exploring, and have been for quite a while, conflict and its various manifestations, the nature of it. So sitting in all these trainings over the years, it got me thinking about conflict, and so I think in poems. So I wrote a, one of my collections of poems is called Conflict. <laughs> Not a terribly appealing title for most poetry lovers, but <laughs> Conflict. And it's a uh, serial poem, uh, 62 poems about conflict, exploring conflict from different angles. So I'll read you one of these poems. Um, this poem is pretty much a quotation from Exodus, from the Bible, uh, which I organized into lines of poetry. And the speaker of the poem is Moses. So here's the, this is one of the 62 poems in the series. 
Why have I not found favor in your eyes to set the burden of this entire people on me now? Did I conceive this? Birth it? That you should tell me carry them all the way home as father, mother, and they cry at me, give us meat to eat, give us meat? Well, kill me, kill me, if that is how it is. So the reality of conflict goes back a long way. Maybe it starts with conflict with God. Maybe that's the beginning. Conflict over the tremendous pain and difficulty of our endless and impossible obligation to one another as fellow human beings. So about criminal law, I I, I don't know too much about it, as I said, and I certainly don't know the history of it, but it seems like criminal law, and, and it's probably true of the law in general, is on the cusp of a really important change. Just as our society is on the cusp of a change, and probably over, over the cusp, maybe the law is a little bit behind the rest of society. And, and, the, and the importance now, uh, and all the talk we hear about mindfulness has everything to do with this change. We're moving from a time of distancing from, or even denying and being oblivious to our feelings, our inner lives, to a time in which we can all see that you cannot ignore your inner life. Everybody has feelings and a whole inner world, and that can't be ignored. Our brains, our hearts, conditioned by our personal histories and socially determined experiences, are the drivers of our behavior. And after decades of discussion of emotional intelligence, mindfulness, psychology, and the reams and reams of narrative, personal narrative writing, especially these days, the confessional memoir, which is like the most popular genre in writing now that barely existed, you know, 25 years ago, we now know that we all have inner lives and that they have to be attended to. We now know that Actually, uh, being a human being is quite a dramatic thing, full of passion and color. And although, uh, of necessity, this is kept pretty far in the background, it's right there in the courtroom, right there in all legal work. And you cannot afford to ignore it. You have to learn how to be open to it. You have to learn how to learn from it. You have to learn how to take it into account in your work. In the case of the criminal justice system, I think the system is shifting from punishment to protection or compassion. 
protection and compassion for all the parties concerned, victims, perpetrators, and society at large. Punishment apparently didn't work all that well. Or, or if somebody wants to argue that it did work well in the past, I don't think it's working very well now, and it's not going to work well in the future. That time when we're focused in criminal law or in law in general on, on punishment is ending. And now we realize that everybody is a victim and that nobody escapes the consequences of his or her actions, even when those actions have been inspired by terrible social circumstances. In many ways, this site of our work, this world, is a tragic, tragic place. And lawyers stand in the middle of that tragedy, and what are we going to do about it? So I know some of you are new to meditation, and a lot of you, probably most of you, have been doing it for a while, so I think you'll, you'll recognize this, that one of the things that comes into your life as a consequence of practicing meditation with some regularity is that you become a more sensitive person. You become more sensitive to the little nicks and bruises that the heart is subject to. Maybe things that in the past you would say and do that were subtly hurtful to others, now you realize those are painful things to say and do, and you don't want to do them anymore. You don't want to say such things anymore. You don't even want to think like that anymore. Because meditation practice sensitizes you to yourself and also to others. I think it makes you a more tender and vulnerable human being. And the more you're familiar with your own mind and its various twists and turns, the more it dawns on you, the more obvious it becomes to you that other people are more or less the same. The human mind is a swirl of activity mostly centered around the self, full of self-justification and self-recrimination and all sorts of scheming to get one's own way. In meditation, you can't help but notice this. And when you get over the initial dismay of realizing what a total wreck you are and how completely self-centered and self-focused you are, you calm down after a while and you realize, well, this is just normal. It's not that big a problem. Everybody's like this. You are a mess, it's true. But you're in good company, because everybody else is pretty much in the same boat. So this gives you uh, a great sense of camaraderie with, er with everybody, with anyone. And it inspires you. It almost requires you to be a more generous and forgiving human being. Because you can see in yourself that the most natural thing when you've been hurt is first to shut down and deny that it happened and then to lash out and try to hurt somebody else as if that would make you feel better. And 
when you practice meditation, this is not a theory that you might think makes sense or not makes sense. It's something that you know because you see it in yourself. You're, you're living it, so you know it's true. And you realize that the mind of someone who would do harm is not that far from yours. So, little by little, in a natural way, your thoughts, your words, your deeds in relation to others become more relaxed, more generous, and kinder. And you become more understanding, more compassionate, even with your adversaries, even your enemies. You understand that they're human too. And there's a reason why they're acting the way they're acting. And, and it becomes crystal clear to you that acting with aggression is a kind of cover-up. And the consequences of it are never good. Now, yes, there are times in anybody's life when strong, decisive action is called for, and you're capable of doing that when you have to. But that doesn't mean that inside you have to be hateful or derisive or defensive. And when, from time to time, inescapably, because you're a human being, you yourself feel defensive, aggressive, now you'll know what that is, and you'll know that that comes from a very, very old and very, very unsuccessful personal and human habit that you have got to learn how to understand and work with, control and overcome eventually. In Mahayana Buddhist discourse, compassion is considered not only a good thing, but the essence of the whole path. A natural consequence of the deepest possible contemplation of the nature of self and reality. And in developing compassion, one of the key practices is the practice of tolerance or forbearance. The capacity to be with something difficult without turning away. Giving up avoidance, embattlement, rationalization. A practitioner realizes that difficulty is always an opportunity to get bigger. When things are really rough, not thinking of that as a mistake, not thinking of that as something that has to be fixed, but facing them, going right toward them with open eyes and an open heart, that's the most important and the most profitable thing to do. So I'm thinking of this in relation to the kind of work that you all do. And I'm imagining that in your work, there are plenty of difficult moments. Plenty of times when you're contemplating some pretty sad and disturbing situations. 
And the temptation would be to inure yourself to these situations, to ignore them, to try to distract yourself, eventually to become bitter, cynical. All, all those things would be examples of an effort to avoid the difficulty. Facing those moments head on isn't easy. But if you can do it, it will open your heart wider and wider and you will become stronger and stronger, stronger than you ever thought possible. And I think most important of all, this strength and openness and resilience will eventually bring a depth of wisdom. So one of the reflections uh, behind the practice of tolerance or forbearance, the Sanskrit word for this is kshanti, kshanti paramita. One of the, one of the uh, reflections behind it has to do with an analysis of responsibility. Who's responsible for an action? So something terrible happens. Ultimately, who's ultimately responsible for this terrible thing that's happened? And the analogy given is of a man who's beating you with a stick. Who do you blame? Should you blame the man or should you blame the stick? Ridiculous, right? Well, not so ridiculous because a dog will attack the stick. Have you ever noticed this? If you hit a dog with a stick, the dog will not attack you. A dog will attack the stick. The dog figures the stick is attacking me. The stick must be the responsible one. But a human being understands, no, no, the stick is not really the cause, the agent, the stick is just the proximate cause, a tool. The actual agent is the person. Similarly, when a person behaves badly, whether by committing a crime or by being an unscrupulous opponent or a biased judge or a difficult client, the person in this case, who's behaving badly, would be in the position of the stick in the analogy. The person is just a proximate cause, in a way a tool, a tool of what? Who is ultimately responsible? It's not the person according to this analysis. You probably know that in Buddhist thought, the idea of person as a discrete operational entity is understood to be fictional. There are no persons. There's just an ever-functioning continuity of form and behavior, not persons. So if a person, in the analogy, if the person is the stick, then what is the person in the analogy? You know, it's a little complicated, but you know what I'm saying? So the person is a stick. So what is the actual causal factor? If a person, it's not the person, what is it? The responsible agent is the passion itself. The compulsion or the obsession, whatever it is, in that fluctuating continuity that we call a person that has compelled the bad behavior. Maybe it's you know, a quality of laziness or not paying attention, maybe it's greed, maybe it's, you know, bad impulse control, maybe it's a damaged brain, 
Maybe it's underdeveloped moral perception because of, you know, bad upbringing or something. But whatever it is, according to this analysis, it ultimately comes down to one thing. To the human habit of self-protection, self-cherishing, self-obsession. If the criminal weren't so stuck on himself and his own needs and desires, he wouldn't commit the crime. He wouldn't be as subject to his social conditioning as he is. If the opposing counsel weren't exclusively concerned with himself and his own needs and desires and views, he wouldn't be such a rotten son of a bitch. <laughs> right? So there's no use chasing the stick around. Getting mad at the attorney, the judge, the criminal. You should be mad at the habit of self-obsession, lack of wisdom, lack of compassion, care, lack of care for others. That's the ultimate culprit, always. So, of course, this analysis doesn't absolve the, the criminal or the bad guy from the obligation to pay the price and hopefully, eventually, with any luck, to repent and atone and rehabilitate somehow. But that's the situation from that person's side. From your side, the challenge is to understand what's really going on, which means you're going to be compassionate and forgiving, even if you have to act to restrain. Because of what happened, you and the person who did the bad action are in different positions right now, yes, but ultimately you're the same. And when you look at, into your own mind, and you're honest, you will also have to admit that exactly like this rotten person, you also are self-obsessed, self-protective, self-focused, heavily in favor of your own views and needs and desires, not really caring all that much about those of others. Maybe you're better off than the criminal or the rotten opposing counsel, probably. But still, the mechanism is the same and you can identify it in yourself. In other words, if you pay attention, your meditation practice is going to teach you quite clearly and quite viscerally that you and whoever it is you're mad at and is giving you a hard time and is ruining your life are fundamentally not different from each other. You just don't have one inch of moral high ground to stand on. Self and other are more or less the same in sharing more or less the same basic human problem. We're all taking our places 
in the human disaster. Everybody has their own place as a consequence of their lives, but basically we're all dancing the same dance. And once you get that, and you feel it, you really feel it from the top of your head all the way through your butt and down to the soles of your feet, you won't be able to condemn other people anymore. You can actually bring the, this insight to fruition through imaginative practices like literally imagining yourself to be the other person. I am that biased judge, actually, and that biased judge is me. I am that rotten opposing counsel, and that rotten opposing counsel actually, fundamentally, is me. We can exchange ourselves with each other because in the end, we all are the same when you come down to the basic human impulses. We all want to live. Everybody wants to live. Nobody wants to die. But we're all going to die. And this is appalling. It's appalling how little power we have in this matter. None. This is appalling to every single human being. And we're all afraid. We all want to love and we all want to be loved, however far from that actual feeling we may have been driven by the circumstances of our lives. We all want to be safe, happy, fulfilled, contribute. Every single person you have ever met or ever will meet shares these same basic human impulses. And based on this, you can see yourself in the other person and you can see the other person in you. And when you see that, it's not hard to practice tolerance, kshanti, paramita, to be able to be with that difficult person, be with that difficult situation in which that difficult person is in the midst of it without turning away, without getting aggressive, without getting defensive. You don't have to go on being victimized by anger, exasperation, or lack of sympathy. And when you practice this way for a while, you can even be very forgiving and compassionate and understanding toward yourself. When you do feel anger, exasperation, and lack of sympathy, because it's going to happen. Because circumstances will arise that will just trigger that atavistic impulse in you and you won't be able to stop it. But you'll be able to say, wow, there it goes again. And you'll be able to understand it as a problem we all share. And you'll be able to be forgiving and compassionate toward yourself, which will change the situation, as it always does. 
forgiveness and compassion change the situation all the time. So you'll know how to practice with these difficult emotions rather than just being scared of them and being victimized by them. When you were a little child, somebody had to teach you not to put your hand into that fascinating and attractive candle flame. This was not obvious to you. Someone had to teach you or you had to learn it the hard way. You wanted to do it, but you learned it was not a good idea. Similarly, our present childish attraction and addiction to anger, exasperation, and lack of sympathy, which after all are pretty unpleasant themselves, is something that we need to outgrow. Now, as a result of our practice, we can see these emotions for what they are. And we know what happens if we let them get the best of us. Things always get worse. So you practice tolerance, forbearance, kshanti, paramita, with your own anger and with the anger of others. And you do it by stopping, taking a breath, and thinking again. Doing this over and over again with patience, on and on, as long as it takes. And it's never perfect, right? One never expects that it's going to be perfect. You just roll up your sleeves like anything else. You go to work every day, right? You don't think you're going to be finished with all your cases. You keep going. Similarly, you're never finished with this work. You just keep going. Little by little, these unpleasant emotions that make such a mess out of things uh, do clear up and become less troublesome, less a part of your life. So I thought I'd conclude with a brief guided meditation, see if we can practice with this, to give you an example of possibly a way that you can imaginatively work with this practice. So, as always, we begin with bringing the attention to the body and the breath settling the mind, settling the body. And I think it, it is impressive uh, once you have practiced for a while how uh, in, in just a few breaths uh, things are different. Just less than a minute. And unite your attention with your body, with your breath. Feel the length of, a, of each breath in and out.
and the smoothness and the rhythm of the coming and going of the breath. So if you can, think of somebody who uh, you've had a rough time with in your working life. Could be personal life too, but someone who brings up strong emotions in you. And see if you can imagine that person uh, sitting some feet away from you, across the room, also quietly breathing. And notice that in this condition of just being quiet and just breathing, in other words, just being basically alive as human beings, there's not so much difference between you and that other person. Now imagine exchanging places with that person, becoming that person, that person becoming you, just changing places. See if you can do that, and if you can't do it, see what you're feeling. Just notice what you're feeling.
And now uh, just let go of that altogether and just be with the breath for a few more minutes and then we'll stop. And just be peaceful. Notice whatever thoughts, feelings come up. everybody for doing that. So we have a little time, maybe 20 minutes, to talk about uh, this or something else if you prefer. recording so that's that's why the mic yeah okay yeah so I was trying to grasp some of the stuff that you were saying but mm-hmm. it was a new way of thinking to me yes yes it's a very different way of thinking you're right so yeah. I'm wondering why you like I don't know if it was generalized or painted the human being so negatively instead of saying each of us as humans has a potential for all this negative stuff, but also a potential for positive stuff. It's, it just seemed like such a, a broad stroke of, of negative mm-hmm. things that you were saying about each of us. Mm-hmm. Right. And instead, <laughs> okay, I come from the Christian perspective uh-huh. where we're created in the image and likeness of God, which is not a horrible negative thing, which yeah. shows potential for positive things in all of us so yeah great point yes um i think it would be hard to uh escape the fact that even though we are the potential that we have for goodness is there there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in us and around us and the way that we become the good people that we're meant to be is by facing that. And what I was trying to say in my talk was by facing this stuff and being honest about it and realistic about it, we become compassionate, forgiving, all those things. Right. So I guess somebody could argue, well, if you think about those negative things and you dwell on them, Aren't you making them stronger? Why don't you not think about them and just think about positive things and good things and then like, try your best to ignore them and maybe they'll go away. But probably, I, my own uh, experience so far is that that doesn't work as well as actually looking at those difficult negative things and having, developing the capacity to overcome them so that you do become a good and noble person. Yes, I think that we all have that vision and that hope, right? That we could become 
really good and noble and wonderful people, we certainly have that potential. We are made in the image of God, but we need to do better, I think. I think we all agree, probably, that we need to do a lot better than we've been doing in manifesting that image. And that was my intention in the talk, and that's why I was focusing on the negative things. I wasn't saying, although it sounds like it sounded to you like I was saying that human beings are rotten and horrible and all that, and, and I wasn't really saying that. I, I was saying that there's a lot of rotten and horrible things that happen in us, yes. But no, we are, I agree, we are made in the image of God and we ought to be able to be noble and wonderful. And it takes some effort, yeah. For me it actually helped when you said that we all have the reaction to when we're hurt, pretend it didn't happen and then lash back out. Right. Because that's something I do and I do it more under stress. And right. As part of, the, part of this practice, what I've been trying to do, what's helping a lot is to see that reaction slow down and try and use the compassion it's exactly a work in progress but that yeah. will get me that's it yeah right and so it was a big relief to hear i'm not the only one yeah no you're not the only one i can guarantee you that yeah right uh there's somebody in the back that had her hand up right away um i'm one of the attorneys that works in the criminal justice system yeah. Um, on the defense side and something that I would love to hear you speak about is I think that I've made some peace with my mean adversary and, and sometimes my clients to, to some extent um, but one of the things that's hardest for me is looking around and seeing the, the structures of injustice in the work that I do um, that aren't attributable to any one person, right. um, but are just systemic um, racism, sexism, uh, a lack of compassion and, and injustice that I see every single day that becomes very wearing. Um, and it's hard to know what to do with those feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I think that, I'll tell you, I'll speak very personally, you know, uh, I mean, although I'm not on the front lines of all this the way you are, I'm also aware of it and, and feel, feel it. Um, so this is how I feel. I, I do feel like, uh, in addition to whatever can be done to directly confront those systems, and that's a frustrating work, right? Because people have been confronting those systems for a very long time. It's hard to do. So let's say we do what we can there, and that's important, but let's bracket that for the moment. In addition to that, I have a lot of faith that my own personal ability to uh, strengthen my own compassion and forgiveness and to treat other people that I encounter that way, that there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in that, that, that you can actually remake situations a lot more than you think you can just by that kind of behavior. So, uh, you know, for many years, I, I also work with business people. And for many years, we've been having retreats for business people. And one of, our, one of the things we've come to is that um, every, and this is equally true of working in the law, we're all living in three, three circles. The smallest circle is you, you know, your thoughts, your feelings, your words and deeds. You have a lot of power in that circle to affect what happens there. 
You can think, you can be discouraged, you can be aggressive, you can be nasty, you can be cynical, or you can be, like you, you were saying, you can be a wonderful person, depending on how you behave and how you cultivate yourself. The second circle in which you're living is the circle of those people that you're working with and seeing every day, or frequently, the people in the court, opposing counsel, clients, defendants, and so on. Those people, while you have less ability to uh, make, an, uh, make an impact there than you do with yourself, you also have quite a bit of ability to make an impact. I really am convinced that one attorney consistently acting with integrity and fairness and kindness in one sphere of law can eventually get a whole lot of other people acting in that same way and mitigating the forces of these systemic problems. And then the third circle in which we're working is this big systemic problem that you're talking about. And that's where we have the least impact. An individual, one person's action has the least impact in that sphere. That doesn't mean that we don't tackle that. It just means that we understand where we can have the most impact, where we can have the second most, and where we can have the least. And we don't expect, we're going to beat our heads against the place where we have the least impact and ignore the places where we have the most impact, then, it's, then we're going to end up bitter and discouraged people. And so I think we all have to understand that and we all have to find our place and our way of working on this whole picture. And whatever, wherever we are gifted with the opportunity uh, and the skills and so on, you know, then we do what we can. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that I think you really have to have a long view. You know, there's no escaping it. Otherwise, you get discouraged. I mean, like I always tell people, like uh, <laughs> the moment when, uh, I think it was uh, 1968, when I had been, uh, in, uh, in those days, I was a very passionate uh, anti-Vietnam War person. And I remember the day in 1968 when I was sitting with all my buddies watching the television and hearing Lyndon Johnson say that he was not running for president. And we were all totally jubilant because the war was going to end the next day, we thought. And from then on, everything was going to be better, completely better, overnight. We were so happy. Well, now it's 40-some years later, and it didn't turn out that way. So... You know, there's a million battles, but the real victory is down the road a ways. It's longer than my lifetime for sure, and yours and your grandchildren's lifetimes. So you have to think like that. You have to think like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to pass the baton on to the next person, and they're going to run their laps, and they're going to pass it on, and that's how we're going to get there, and we're going to get there. And that's the spirit you have to have. You, have. you actually have to have a practice of hopefulness. Not that X, Y, and Z is going to happen in such and such a time, but that with continued effort on the part of all of us together, because we are made in God's image, and there is, this, is a, this is a very positive possibility in being human. You have to look at it that way. And you, but you have to also not just make that a Pollyanna thing, but you're working on it every day in your conduct, every single day. And when you find uh, aggression in you and around you, you're confronting it. You're dealing with it every single day. 
So that's the, I think you have to have a spirit like that. And, and to me, ultimately, it requires some kind of practice like this. If it's not meditation, it's prayer or something, whatever it is, that gives you a bigger picture and a longer view. You really have to cultivate those activities in your life. Otherwise, it's too hard. Because the world is tough, in, unless you have something like that in your life. Mm-hmm. Where's the mic at? Oh, there we go. Um, so I'm another person who practices criminal law, but I also mm. teach. And, and it mm -hmm. strikes me that when you talk about compassion, we have two very contradictory models for lawyers. We, we teach lawyers that their job is to care about what their client wants and to set their own sense of morality and judgment and values aside. And you can tell people till the cows come home, you know, you don't have to take that job. But people find themselves, whether it's at firms mm -hmm. or work. So on the one hand, we, we teach this model of amorality, right? Not immorality, but amorality. You don't mm. have any particular values. Your values are what your client wants. Mm. And I think that's very distancing from one's own identity. Yeah. And on the other extreme, and here I'm speaking with my criminal defense attorney hat on, um, there's compassion fatigue. When you, right. when, you, when you toil in the fields, right? And, and every day what you're doing is, is witnessing suffering and often seeing yourself, whether it's true or not, as the only person in that universe who recognizes the human being that you're representing mm -hmm. as not just another, but as a self, right? As someone who has an independent value in human dignity and, and life. And I wonder what your thoughts are about reconciling those two extremes in the legal profession, because I find very few people who've hit that balance. Mm. Um, I, I certainly haven't. Hmm. So, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's it's two different things. One is the 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 uh, the, the client having to uh, fulfill the client's needs and therefore being amoral, in effect. And then on the other hand, compassion fatigues. So maybe connected, but two different issues. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, anybody have a really easy question? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, let, let me say, first of all, uh, now, like I said in the beginning, everything I know about lawyers, I, hear, I heard from my friends and saw on TV. So excuse me if I'm completely wrong about this. But it just strikes me that, that a lawyer as wise counselor is not amoral. A lawyer, in my view, should not be just like a person, like a technician, like hiring somebody to repair your refrigerator, you know what I mean? That's maybe amoral or not, not you know. I, I think a lawyer is not that. A lawyer is more than that. So if somebody, if a client comes to me and wants to do things, is asking me to help them do things that are enormously destructive to them as well as others, that my wise counsel would be, let's talk about this. You want to do this? I understand why. Let me understand. First of all, let me understand why you want to do this and what you're really after. Let's have a conversation and explore this more. And then in the conversation, if I felt like my wise counsel was, you know, I'm not sure this is a good idea for the following reasons, I should say that. And, and so, I, I, to me, that's not amoral. There is a moral, I would say, a moral imperative there to actually help your client to understand and see what it is that they themselves are trying to do, and if you think it's destructive, 
to them and others to say so. Now that doesn't mean in the end you don't say, well, I don't agree with this, but I'll help you. But at least then you've discharged uh, a moral judgment and you've expressed yourself. So it's not just whatever you want, whatever you say, you have a, you're there as a human being with a point of view and also more wisdom about the law and what happens and what to expect and so on. So that's, that's that. And then the other one, um, compassion fatigue, is something that you know, comes up a lot, and I work, another thing I do is work with caregivers for the dying, and they, and they have a lot of that, you know, that's a pretty, I mean, they lose all their patience, right? So, uh, yes, and, and again, this has to do with, I think, what I was saying a moment ago, uh, the necessity, when you're doing work like that, I don't see how anybody can possibly do that kind of work without some sort of for want of a better word, spiritual perspective. Because, yes, on an objective basis, if you measure success and happiness by winning cases, you're, you're toast. You know, it's not going to... You have to measure it by the quality of the connection and the quality of the interaction. And you can help 100% of your clients. You can help 100% of your clients even if you lose 90% of your cases, by treating them with respect and, and, and kindness and really having a dialogue with them and a, commu- a real communication with them. So you can't always win the case, obviously, but you can, you can be a... I mean, a lot of people who find themselves in criminal court are people who don't have the experience very often of being respected and listened to by a, by a substantial person in their lives. You can be that person, maybe the first one. And that can be, you know, sometimes you lose the case, but you win it, right? In other words, somebody who shouldn't go to jail goes to jail, but maybe in their encounter with you, they've got some sense of their lives that then in jail they can find a way to turn their lives around. Sometimes going to jail can be a benefit, you know, if you're inspired. So... uh, that's one thing. And then the other thing is you really, really, really have to take care of yourself. You have to know what it feels like when you've got compassion fatigue and what you need to do about it to care for yourself. And you need to have uh, this bigger vision of real empowerment. You know, there is real power in decency and kindness and goodness. And that's something you have to cultivate in yourself and you have to be a, have a program for increasing that in yourself. And when, and when you see that happening, you're encouraged and you feel good, you know. So it's a whole, I mean, there's much more, and it's an ongoing thing. It's not like, here's what you do, A, B, C. It's like, no, it's a whole life, right? It's a life, but, but it, it certainly can be done and people do do it. But, and, you know, um, how this kind of a conversation that we're having right now is not had in a law school is one of the most shocking things you can ever imagine. You know? Yeah. So, so that, that, and this is something Charlie, I know, has been concerned with and giving, doing courses at law. So that, that be, people should be trained and these conversations should be had with lawyers. And, and people should know, instead of practicing for 15 years and kill, do, killing yourself, to, to finally limping into a meditation retreat and finding out about this, <laughs> you should get it in the beginning, you know? Yeah. Over here, there's some... 
Well, I also do criminal defense, so there's more than one or two. Oh, okay. There's at least three. Yeah, we got three at least. Yeah. Um, I find that there's a lot of conflict uh, in myself around the work. I, I don't think it's... Um, I understand why she said amoral, um, in that you don't... I don't think it's our role to moralize or judge about what the person we're representing has done and not even judge whether they're innocent or guilty because yeah. a lot of the times I win trials for someone who, um, if I really thought about it, is pretty surely guilty of something mm -hmm. very heinous, mm -hmm. you know? And I, f I find that I have to sort of like rationalize within myself like how not to feel horrible about that. Um, you mean that specific thing? Yeah, uh -huh. and and I do. I don't feel horrible anymore because I've sort of built this like rational construct in my uh -huh. head about you know this is the forest and not the tree, and maybe that tree was rotten, but the mm -hmm. forest is mm -hmm. like really important, and uh, I'm just sort of one piece in this bigger machinery that's trying to turn out justice, and I'm trying to influence it mm -hmm. the best I can, but yet. You know, when someone's, um, you know, like when the, when the charge is like rape or child molesting or something like that, it's, it's really hard um, for me to yeah. kind of differentiate there. And, and I, I don't even know if there's a question here, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I, but uh, the thing about fatigue, about, about compassion fatigue, I remember when I started, like, people would be like, oh, I have to do 10 days, and I'd be like, oh, that's terrible, let me work with you, and now they're, like, I have people, like, doing, like, two decades, you know, mm -hmm. and when someone whines about 10 days, I'm just like, I have very little compassion for people, especially when they're not taking responsibility for the fact that it was their choices and actions that put them there, and they're not just a total victim to this. Mm. Anyway, I find myself almost wanting to keep a calloused heart. Um, mm, yeah. Even though that's not my nature. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I could understand. Yeah. Well, uh, let me just uh, put in a good word for feeling bad. <laughs> you said you felt badly uh, when certain things happened. And I think there are times when we should feel badly, right? There are t things that we do or that happen uh, ought to make us feel bad. So, um, and I think when you look at feeling bad, whatever we mean by that, carefully, you look within yourself and you'll see probably that we're scared of feeling bad. It's scary. It's kind of like, I'm scared that if I really let myself feel how badly I feel over this case, I might fall down like an abyss and never get out. So I think we're scared of feeling bad, but I think if we have, uh, again, um, I'm assuming we have some practice and we work, we're working on the practice, that's what we're all here for, so let's assume that. We then have uh, protection and support and we can afford to let ourselves feel badly, knowing, with having confidence that we're not going to fall down an endless pit, that we're going to feel badly for a while, and that actually 
that's a good thing. I mean, a good person should feel badly when bad things happen. You know, I mean, if, if your sibling dies, you feel bad, and you should feel bad. I mean, the person who says, well, so-and-so died, but yeah, everybody dies, you know, it happens. It's not a big deal, you know. I mean, I'm sad about it, but, you know, I mean, if you hear somebody talking like that, you think, what's wrong with this person, you know? They should be feeling bad. And you should be feeling bad when things like that happen. And you should think of feeling bad as a kind of spiritual practice. This is how I purify myself from this terrible action that happened, even though I didn't intend it, it happened. And so I'm feeling badly, and I'm going to, you know, just take some time to just sort of be with my bad feeling, or journal about it, or go for a walk, or meditate, or something, and let myself go through it, so that I can get past it. So there's, I think, that's a whole practice in itself, you know, to feel badly when bad things happen. So I think uh, it's almost like uh, every day we take care of ourselves. That's part, partly what I'm saying here is it's a way of taking care of yourself. Every day you take care of yourself. And yes, I think you're, what you're saying about the forest and the trees and, and that, you know, doing what you're doing for the law and the law is important is all true. And so then you have to make this sustainable over a lifetime's work. And you have to figure out what do I need to sustain this work and how do I take care of myself? And when feel bad when it's time to feel bad, pick myself up when it's time to pick myself up, take care of my body, take care of my heart, have the proper support. Yeah. So it's hard. I mean, you know, that's the thing. When you're living in a difficult world, there's just no way to escape the difficulty, right? And you don't want to. We don't want to escape the difficulty. When, when it's there, why shouldn't we all share in it? So if they're behind you, you can just pass the mic. Yeah. So in working with compassion, um, I've learned that you know you you can take these emotions like hatred or or fear, and then try to like look underneath that and see what's the positive emotion that kind of gave rise to that. If someone yeah. is very angry at a government for taking away their rights to build, it's because they have such you know passion about their property. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's at the moment it's very hard to get to those positive layers and then you mean in in the moment in the moment of the action Uh uh, in your work how do you get that shortcut Uh (laughs) developed well it's yeah it's that's the key word you develop it over time so uh i mean one thing let's say you're in a situation like that and you don't have the time to reflect and and things go and then later you can program you can Give you, make a commitment to yourself that whenever you have a situation like that, that, that's difficult and you end up feeling not good about it or off balance, that you'll take time afterward to practice with it and sit with it and think about it and journal about it or analyze it or to have, have a colleague that you can talk to about it so that you can understand better. So that next time, maybe you will be able to be more present in that moment. And little by little by little, you... Sometimes it happens and you don't even acknowledge it to yourself. For weeks, <laughs> weeks later, you might be feeling bad and you might realize, oh, you know why I'm feeling bad now? It's because that happened two weeks ago and I never did look at it. So you train yourself to look at those things. You train yourself to see those moments, those difficult moments, as treasures. Aha! 
great, a horrible moment. I can hardly wait. <laughs> because I know that it's that kind of a moment that's going to increase my capacity to have wisdom and an open heart. And then you take that moment and you work with it. And then little by little, by doing that over time, and, and, you, and you know, with a regular meditation practice and, and reflections on these things, you do get to where your, your capacity increases. This is a work in progress. It just goes on a whole lifetime. So, little by little, yeah. So, um, earlier this year I taught a Mindfulness for Law Students uh, course, and I'm teaching it again starting next week. Wonderful. And I just wondered if you were going to identify just a few key messages that you'd like to make sure (laughs) get to law students. I know it's a big question, but wonder if you might share your thoughts on that. Hmm. Well, I'll say a few things, but actually, Charlie's the one to answer that question, because he was having courses at UC Berkeley, a number of them, one after another, and he's well aware of the kinds of concerns and the kinds of messages that work. But just briefly, um, uh, I guess kind of what I was saying in my talk, to to let, let them know that this kind of practice will... Uh, open up their hearts and sensitize them to themselves and that they should be uh, doing that. That's good for them to be feeling and that they need support. I think that's important. It's kind of like this conversation we were saying before. How come they don't have that conversation in law school? So that you can have that conversation with these people because they're going to be open through the practice that this is a hard work and you have to face what's hard and you need support in doing that. And uh, the, this practice will help you, and also allies, other people who are other lawyers who are practicing law and doing a mindfulness practice. Can you have a buddy or a group of people that you can talk to? And, and an ongoing conversation, like we have in our working group, it's an ongoing conversation more than 10 years now about how to apply this to, to the law. So encouraging them in that way and giving them a vision for that possibility. Do you want to speak to that, answer that question, or speak to it? I want to ask a question that builds off of it, I can. Oh, well, let's give Charlie first a chance if he wants to add something to that. Uh, Thanks, Norman. Um, I think um, kind of at, at the core of what I've been doing as I teach mindfulness to the law students is to really address a question that you mentioned early on, and that is the fact that these conversations should be taking place in the law schools. And not only don't they take place, but the culture of the institutions and the educational processes that all of us have come up through make these conversations seem illegitimate. They, they, they turn law into a, a, a kind of cognitive discipline that the practitioner does best in by just dealing with mm-hmm. thoughts and not feelings. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's uh, led to the difficult situation we have today. So, I mean, Tom and I have talked about this before, but uh, I think to just be clear about the fact that law is a, is a, a profession which deeply engages our uh, emotions in our whole selves, or at least it should be. Uh, 
if we really want to, if we're really committed to working for more just results, we've got to treat it in that fashion. And I think um, uh, that, um, that a, a meditation practice is a good way to create a durable vessel for holding extremely difficult problems. And um, um, I think having a, a, a group of people who have created that kind of vessel and have a shared vision, I think the, the, the sense of having a community of support mm -hmm. uh, is, is crucial for this. And that's something that I uh, encourage them to do as well. That's enough for now, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think. To me, in our culture, we have a lot of ways of knowing when cer certain forms of practice are working. If I'm in school and doing well, I'm getting grades. If I'm doing athletics, I know how that's working out. And you think about it, it's kind of counterintuitive. You go to the gym the first day and you work out and you wake up the next day and you hurt like hell, and yet somehow you're going to get stronger. But you believe it because there's some pattern on that. And I also believe, though, now coming back to what you were talking about, this spiritual growth and the need for that to overlay the entire other process that I was outlining. But what I'm asking for, and you may have already answered this to an extent, is kind of where are the grades <laughs> Where are the indications that the progress is being made? I feel it has been made, and I commit to it for, as a lifelong and next life on process, if you will. But where it's those benchmarks, which is a culture we don't seem to call out. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that we know, we know as you i think you just said this that that we we know from the quality of our own lives that the practice is is working and um it's funny you know uh we could have a whole discussion about benchmarks and progress and all this and uh I was, uh, somebody was, I was heard on the news today, uh, somebody, there's a little headline that um, Facebook is going to have emoticons on Facebook, and the headline was, this may be the beginning of monetizing our emotions. And I thought to myself, what a word, monetize. It's a common word now, but I don't think it existed. Uh, even five years ago or ten years ago, to monetize. So we, we would be good to avoid monetizing our practice, right? By creating a benchmarks, and then we could uh, put monetary value on the benchmarks, and then we could uh, compare how, how much money I got in my practice versus how many points you got in yours, and so on. In other words, there's something about spiritual development that militates against that whole way of thinking. Um, but yes, of course, we do want to know that it matters, but we, we know from 
our internal experience and the quality of our lives. But also there's something else too, and that is through our relationships. Almost all spiritual development includes, as Charlie mentioned it a second ago, uh, a community of, of peers and friends. And uh, I think the feedback that we get from our community of peers and friends and the deepening relationships and the appreciation of those relationships is an index of that our practice goes well. So, something like that, what I would say. So maybe, uh, last one, Emily can have the last word, and Emily's over here. Where's the mic? Oh. Uh, because it's time, I think, uh, now to end. But last question, or, or thought. Um, so I have two, two thoughts, um, feel-good thoughts for the end of the... Oh, good. Program, I think um, one is to the benchmark question that I just recently had a conversation that was probably one of the more difficult interpersonal conversations I've ever had and I don't think I could have done it a year ago and I mm. felt afterwards that the reason that it went as well as it did is right. because I've been practicing right. uh, diligently on the compassion and the I'm no different than this other person who mm -hmm. I spent a long time judging and yeah. Um, uh, thinking differently. And then I wanted to um, offer, to, is it Tom who asked about the um, class? A piece of wisdom you gave to me when I said to you at Green Gulch one day, I'm about to teach a class in mindfulness. Do you have anything to offer me? Mm. Uh, any suggestions or ideas? And what Norman said to me was, um, make sure you make space for people to speak mm. because it's going to be new and uh, disruptive and make sure you make enough room for the students and I think I had not done that in my curriculum as it was planned and I mm. made some adjustments and I think much of the most powerful work that happened in the class was because of that so mm -hmm. thank you and mm -hmm. I offer that to you. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing and I'm sure you're experiencing it in this retreat that when you sit together it changes the kind of conversation that you have. You can have a, a more heartfelt conversation, a more real conversation. So in any time you're having a mindfulness, a class, uh, and you're teaching mindfulness meditation, giving people a chance to learn from each other and talk to each other is a huge advantage and it makes a better conversation. So I thanks everybody for all that. That's really, uh, wow, I mean, so much to think about and, and uh, and understand. That's what's wonderful about this. You know, there's so much to understand. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I guess now we're going to go back to sitting, or are we going to yeah. walk first? I, you could stop the tape. I think. Yeah. I think we'll maybe put the room back, and we'll be. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.